0: course there's bad churches, Um, then go find a good one. And if you have to drive to get to it, then it's worth the drive, I would say. You know? So get in your car and go. I mean, how bad do you want it? I mean, how important is the truth to you? Decidedly Christian distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods, still fighting this head cold. I was feeling good, and I start talking, and my throat gets all raspy. But uh, it is what it is. Mmm. I don't have any of the little powdered donuts, which was what uh, Rush Limbaugh used to always say worked best for clearing up phlegm in his throat. (laughs) Never tried that. Um, Little powdered donuts are not on my, uh, not on, I don't know if they're little powdered donuts or they're little chocolate covered donuts. It's been a long time since I heard him say that, but it was, it amused me at the time. But uh, we will get through it. This is Squirrel Chatter a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, current events and whatever else it is that I want to talk about. And we webcast every day at 7:30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook and Twitch. And the podcast is available afterwards wherever you find find podcasts. Wherever you find find. I'm going to have to enunciate a little bit more with my nose stuffed up today. And we are a proud member of the Christian podcast community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. Um, you're sure to find something worth listening to. There's all sorts of good stuff. All sorts of good stuff. And and uh, I'm not even going to recommend podcasts to you today. They're everywhere. Uh, Truth Be Known podcast is, is a good one. Uh, uh, Voice of Reason radio podcast. Bible Sojourner podcast conversations that matter matter of theology. These are some of the ones that I regularly listen to. And then I pick up a smattering of other ones on the board just because I want to see what's going on and what, uh, what, what else is happening on the network. But there's so many podcasts, there's no possible way I can listen to all of them. And you probably can't either, (laughs) but they do have a single feed that you can subscribe where every one of the podcasts pop up in that feed. So if you're just looking for something doctrinally sound to have on in the background, just subscribe to that feed and you can listen to it all. Um, you know, just kind of have it on in the background like a, like a radio station. You, you could do much worse. You could do much worse. All right. Well, what do we got going on today? It is Friday. Friday. Friday, the 10th of February, 2023, which means it's Federalist Friday, and we're going to be looking at Federalist number 16 today. We also have prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer and a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. Now, before we get started, I just want to briefly comment on The Christianity Today article involving John MacArthur and Grace Church. Yesterday marked one month from the start of yesterday or Wednesday. Anyway, we're about to start Shepherds Conference here in the next month. And every year about this time, there is some sort of quote-unquote scandal that makes the news regarding Grace Church and John MacArthur. The ultimate source behind all these seems to be a muckraker by the name of Julie Royce. Don't bother looking her up. It'll be a waste of your time. She has it in for John MacArthur, and she is going to distort any information she comes across to make Grace Church look in the, the worst light possible well the story that broke in broke quote-unquote in Christianity Today this week is exactly the same quote-unquote scandal that came out at Shepherds Conference time last year and I have many friends at Grace Church and among my friends at Grace Church are more than one of the elders now, I have not talked to them recently about this, but I talked to many of them last year about this kerfuffle, and I'm convinced that it's pure muckraking that uh you know while they're you know certainly nobody is perfect, and so there there could have been. I'm 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 avoiding giving any details about the case. I don't want to spread the story any further than it is. But it it involved a marital counseling situation and some church discipline and some stuff that happened. And I believe firmly that the the elders have assured me that they did what they did in with clear consciences and knowing these men and trusting them i would believe that Um, they have earned my trust over the years um i see no reason to doubt them Um, but i will say that after last year's shepherd's conference uh, within a month or so of the end of shepherd's conference one of the grace church elders who is also a friend resigned from the Board of Elders, and he and his family left the church and are now attending another church in the area. And it was over this matter. He disagrees with the decision of the board about how it was handled and the fact that they were not going to revisit it. Disagreements happen among brothers. I know Han. I trust him. I believe he is a man of integrity. But I believe he's mistaken. Um, I have and again, I'm saying all of this, not being at all privy to any of the inside information or any of the private information which is uh, understandably and rightfully private, that involve you know, biblical counseling involving a husband and wife and everything that went on behind the scenes. Um, I know what has been said publicly. And I know what, you know, but nothing has changed between last year and this year. So the, the Christianity Today article is just a rehashing of the same thing. It was responded to last year. There's nothing new there. Um, and, and so I just wanted to, to make a comment that I have utmost confidence because they have earned my trust in John MacArthur and the elders of Grace Church. Knowing, of course, that they are human, that they've doubtless made mistakes along the way, and they may have even made mistakes in this case. But I don't think the mistakes in this case amount to the great scandal that it is being portrayed. Um, and, I, and I say that, like I said, I still consider Han Cho a friend who who is the elder who resigned, and he is quoted in the CT article. Um, and I, I do consider him a friend. I just, I think he's, I think he's wrong. I I think I understand where he's coming from. I think I understand how he got swept up in it. Um, and I see his point of view. I just don't think it's correct. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, you know, I, in a month, I'll be down there. Or <laughs> we'll probably be talking about this because it's going to come up so in a month I'll be down there and I'll probably, if I get any more information and it's public and shareable I may share it with you but I just wanted to touch on that and let you know, yes, I'm aware of it no, I'm not going to be talking about it anymore Um, you know, I mean, look behind me I picture me and John MacArthur right behind my head Um, I I know and trust the man I love his ministry Um, I have appreciated him for a long time um, when I say I know him, <laughs> he, he doesn't know who I am. He kind of vaguely recognizes me when he runs into me and he, he, and, but I always have to remind him who I am because I'm a small fish and he's a busy man. And that's just the way of it. Um, but I have benefited greatly from his Bible teaching over the years. There's a MacArthur study Bible here behind me that I use daily. I have his complete commentary set on the top shelf back there behind me behind that picture of my dad holding up the fish and those commentaries get pulled off whenever I'm going through a New Testament book so I just you know, want to point this out that I am aware of what's going on I'm watching it I'm paying attention I read the the Christianity Today article I don't recommend it I don't recommend Christianity Today Uh, it's I think it was Phil Johnson, that called it many years ago, Christianity astray. And I think that's very true. Um, and, and now that its editor-in-chief is Dr. Russell Moore, <laughs> I trust it even less. So there you go. That's just my opinion. All right, back to the show. Let us begin with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, as is our practice according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. This devotional is entitled, Testing Jesus' Divine Rights. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread, Matthew 43 b Before Satan tempted Jesus more directly, he threw out a cynical challenge to test Christ's deity. The devil's conditional statement, if you are the Son of God, assumed that Jesus was indeed God's beloved Son, 317. But he hoped to persuade him into a demonstration of divine power that would violate God's plan, which called for Jesus to set aside his divine power while on earth and use it only when the Father commanded. If Satan could make Jesus presume upon his divine rights and act independently of his Father, this would amount to disobedience. Obviously, then, the purpose of the first temptation went far beyond getting Jesus to satisfy his physical hunger by wrongly using miraculous power. The devil wanted him to doubt the Father's word, love, and provision, to disobediently declare that being hungry was simply not fit for God's only Son. Satan's argument was, hadn't he endured enough humiliating circumstances already? The stable, the flight to Egypt, obscurity in Nazareth, and this time in the wilderness, in an effort to identify with unworthy humanity? But unlike Eve in the Garden of Eden, cross-reference Genesis 3, Jesus stayed true to God's will and did not cast doubt on the Father's word or his already secured position as God's Son. Ask yourself. Yes, there is more at stake in temptation than the mere subject of the enticement. There are significant matters of trust and freedom and identity involved. How seriously are you taking these threats to your Christian calling? Pray that God would help you see the battle for what it is. All right, well, it's Federalist Friday, and we're turning to Federalist number 16 today. And I'm hoping my my throat will hold out. I may not stop and comment very much. (laughs) I may just read through the Federalist paper because I I am seriously considering the fact that my voice is not going to make it to the end of the show. And that's just the way it is. Um, Fighting a head cold, always fun. Federalist Number 16, again by Alexander Hamilton, the title of this one is The Same Subject Continued, The Insufficiency of the Present Confederation to Preserve the Union. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, December Fourth, 1787. To the people of the State of New York. The tendency of the principle of legislation for states or communities in their political capacities as it has been exemplified by the experiment we have made of it, is equally attested by the events which have befallen all other governments of the Confederate kind, of which we have any account, in exact proportion, to its prevalence in those systems. The confirmations of this fact will be worthy of a distinct and particular examination. I shall content myself with barely observing here that of all the confederacies of antiquity which history has handed down to us, the Lycian and Achaean leagues, as far as there remain vestiges of them, appear to have been most free from the fetters of that mistaken principle, and were accordingly those which have best deserved, and have most liberally received, the applauding suffrage of political writers. This exceptional principle may, as truly as emphatically, be styled the parent of anarchy. It has been seen that delinquencies in the members of the Union are its natural and necessary offspring, and that whenever they happen, the only constitutional remedy is force, and the immediate effect of the use of it, civil war. It remains to inquire how far so odious an engine of government in its application to us would even be capable of answering its end. If there should not be a large army constantly at the disposal of the national government, it would either not be able to employ force at all, or, when this could be done, it would amount to a war between parts of the Confederacy concerning the infractions of a league in which the strongest combination would most likely to prevail, whether it consisted of those who supported or of those who resisted the general authority. It would rarely happen that the delinquency to be redressed would be confined to a single member, and if there were more than one who had neglected their duty, similarity of situation would induce them to unite for common defense. Independent of this motive for sympathy, if a large and influential state should happen to be the aggressing member, it would commonly have weight enough with its neighbors to win over some of them as associates to its cause." Specious arguments of danger to the common liberty could easily be contrived. Plausible excuses for the deficiencies of the party could, without difficulty, be invented to alarm the apprehensions, inflame the passions, and conciliate the goodwill, even of those states which are not chargeable with any violation or omission of duty. This would be the more likely to take place, as the delinquencies of the larger members might be expected sometimes to proceed from an ambitious premeditation in their rulers, with a view to getting rid of all external control upon their designs of personal aggrandizement. The better to effect which it is presumable, they would tamper beforehand with leading individuals in the adjacent states. If associates could not be found at home, recourse would be had to the aid of foreign powers, who would seldom be disinclined to encourage the dissensions of a confederacy, from the firm union of which they had so much to fear. When the sword is once drawn, the passions of men observe no bounds of moderation. The suggestions of wounded pride, the instigations of irritated resentment, would be apt to carry the states against which the arms of the union were exerted to any extremes necessary to avenge the affront or to avoid the disgrace of submission. The first war of this kind would probably terminate in a dissolution of the Union. This is a note. We did have a war of this kind. It took place in the 1860s, just under 100 years after the Constitution was written and adopted. It did not result in the dissolving of the Union, but it did result in more death of Americans than any other war we have ever been in. Um, just to point out, and and the causes were very similar to the causes that Hamilton is outlying here, that the federal government was being resisted by states in— actually, there wasn't even an adoption of anything when the Confederacy broke. The the whole instigation of the Confederacy breaking away from the United States in the Civil War— was the fact that an anti-slavery president had been elected. No laws had been passed. There had been no regulations made. But that was really the, the you know, there was talk of abolishing slavery. And and yes, as someone from the South, someone who uh, has some sympathies with the state right arguments that the South made, at the same time, I admit freely and fully that the heart of the issue of the formation of the Confederate States of America and their breaking away from the the United States was indeed an effort to preserve slavery. Um, This does not uh, mean that every soldier that fought for the South was trying to fight to preserve slavery. It does not mean that every commander or politician who took part in the government of the confederate states was that interested in preserving slavery robert e lee faithfully said that you know he would happily free all the slaves if it would end the war um so you had you know you had people with moral objections to slavery in the south too but as uh Shelby Foote. If you ever get to read uh, Shelby Foote's massive three-volume narrative history of the Civil War, it's it's fantastic. But he tells in there the story of a Southern soldier and a Northern soldier having a conversation. Um, and I don't remember the exact circumstances. One or the other had been captured or something, but they were in a conversation. And the northern soldier asks the southern soldier why he's fighting so hard to preserve slavery. And the southern soldier says, I'm not. And the northern soldier says, then why are you fighting? He says, and the southern soldier says, because you're down here. You know, the north had invaded the south. And a lot of these people were looking at it as a defense of their homes, not a defense of the institution of slavery. So there were myriad uh, things involved but what madison is talking about here in federalist 16 does apply and uh, but i this this war did not uh end in the dissolution of the union because the north won and uh, uh and i will admit abraham lincoln is not my favorite president not because of the slavery issues but because of other reasons <laughs> which we can get into at some other time, Um, even though he is the first Republican president and uh, I generally vote Republican, um, I do have some issues with some of the actions that Abraham Lincoln took, but be that as it may, back to Federalist 16. This may be considered as the violent death of the Confederacy. And one of the things was, Madison was talking here, or Hamilton was talking here in, what if the war took place under the Articles of Confederation? That would end the United States. The, the war that took place in the 1860s actually happened under the, the Constitution of the United States, and that made a big difference. Had it been under the Articles of Confederation... Uh, the, no, the Union would have been been done. It says, this may be considered as the violent death of the Confederacy. Its more natural death is what we now seem to be on the point of experiencing. If the federal system be not speedily renovated in a more substantial form, it is not probable, considering the genius of this country, that the complying states would often be inclined to support the authority of the Union by engaging in a war against the non-competing states. Excuse me just a moment, folks. And I'm back. Sorry about that. All right, let's continue. They would always be more ready to pursue the milder course of putting themselves upon an equal footing with the delinquent members by an imitation of their example. And the guilt of all would thus become the security of all. Our past experience has exhibited the operation of this spirit in its full light. There would, in fact, be an insuperable difficulty in ascertaining when force could, with propriety, be employed. In the article of pecuniary contribution, which would be the most unusual source of delinquency, that's a word I'm going to have to look up, P-E-C-U-N-I-A-R-Y. Pecuniary pecuniary That'll be looked up later. It would often be impossible to decide whether it had proceeded from disinclination or inability. The pretense of the latter would always be at hand, and the case must be very flagrant, in which its fallacy could be detected with sufficient certainty to justify the harsh expedient of compulsion. It is easy to see that this problem alone, as often as it should occur, would open a wild, wide field for the exercise of factious views of partiality and of oppression in the majority that happened to prevail in the National Council. It seems to require no pains to prove that the states ought not to prefer a national constitution, which could only be kept in motion, by the instrumentality of a large army continually on foot to execute the ordinary requisitions or decrees of the government. And yet this is the plain alternative involved by those who wish to deny it, the power of extending its operations to individuals. Such a scheme, if practicable at all, would instantly degenerate into a military despotism, but it will be found in every light light impracticable the resources of the Union would not be equal to the maintenance of an army considerable enough to confine the larger states within the limits of their duty, nor would the means ever be furnished of forming such an army in the first instance. Whoever considers the populousness and strength of several of these states singly at the present juncture, and looks forward to what they will become, even at the distance of half a century, will at once dismiss as idle and visionary any scheme which aims at regulating their movements by laws to operate upon them in their collective capacities and to be executed by a coercion applicable to them in the same capacities. A project of this kind is little less romantic than the monster-taming spirit which is attributed to the fabulous heroes and demigods of antiquity. Even in those confederacies which have been composed of members smaller than many of our countries. The principle of legislation for sovereign states supported by military coercion has never been found effectual. It has rarely been attempted to be employed, but against the weaker members and in most instances attempts to coerce the refractory and disobedient have been the signals of bloody wars in which one half of the Confederacy has displayed its banners against the other half. The result of these observations to an intelligent mind must be clearly this that if it be possible at any rate to construct a federal government capable of regulating the common concerns and preserving the general tranquility, it must be founded as to the objects committed to its care upon the reverse of the principle contended for by the oppositions of the proposed Constitution. It must carry its agency to the persons of the citizens. It must stand in need of no immediate legislations, but must itself be empowered to employ the arm of the ordinary magistrate to execute its own resolutions. The majesty of the national authority must be manifested through the medium of the courts of justice. The government of the Union, like that of each state, must be able to address itself immediately to the hopes and fears of individuals and to attract to its support those passions which have the strongest influence upon the human heart. It must, in short, possess all the means, and have a right to resort to all the methods of executing the powers with which it is entrusted, that are possessed and exercised by the government of the particular states. To this reasoning it may perhaps be objected that if any state should be disaffected to the authority of the Union, it could at any time obstruct the execution of its laws, and bring the matter to the same issue of force, with the necessity of which, the opposite scheme is reproached. The plausibility of this objection will vanish the moment we avert to the essential differences between a mere non-compliance and a direct and active resistance. If the interposition of the state legislatures be necessary to give effect to a matter of the Union, they they have only not to act or to act evasively, and the measure is defeated. This neglect of duty may be disguised under affected but unsubstantial provisions, so as not to appear, and of course not to excite any alarm, in the people for the safety of the Constitution. The state leaders may even make a merit of their surreptitious invasions of it on the ground of some temporary convenience, exemption, or advantage. It's basically saying if they keep the, the, the same system, if the states, because the states have to agree to everything that the federal government under the Articles of Confederation decided to do, as should say, the confederated government, because it wasn't a federal system. The confederated government decided to do. All they had to do was not acquiesce, basically a kind of a pocket be- veto by state legislatures, because the federal government or the national government, the government under the Confederacy, had no authority to implement its decisions its decisions were not binding unless ratified by the states and and that was the big problem as we have seen in previous articles continuing hamilton writes but if the execution of the laws of the national government should not require the intervention of the state legislatures if they were to pass into immediate operation upon the citizens themselves the particular governments could not interrupt their progress without an open and violent exertion of an unconstitutional power. No omissions nor evasions would answer the end. They would be obliged to act, and in such a manner as would leave no doubt as that they had encroached on the national rights. An experiment of this nature would always be hazardous in the face of a constitution in any degree competent, to its own defense, and of a people enlightened enough to distinguish between a legal exercise and an illegal usurpation of authority. The success of it would require not merely a factious majority in the legislature, but the concurrence of the courts of justice and of the body of the people if the judges were not embarked in a conspiracy with the legislature they would pronounce the resolutions of such a majority to be contrary to the supreme law of the land unconstitutional and void if the people were not tainted with the spirit of their state representatives they as the natural guardians of the constitution would throw their weight into the nat- into the national scale and give it a decidedly excuse me give it a decided preponderance in the contest Attempts of this kind would not often be made with levity or rashness because they could seldom be made without danger to the authors unless in cases of tyrannical exercise of the federal authority. So what he's talking about here is illegitimate resistance to legitimate federal authority by the states. Now, the states have legal and constitutional recourses for disagreeing with decisions made by the federal government. The first recourse is the courts. And we see that that's happening quite often right now. Several, uh, the state of Montana has said, Governor Gianforti just, just announced this week that the state of Montana will not enforce new firearm regulations coming out of alcohol, tobacco and firearms. Remember these regulations are not laws We need to understand that. These are not laws that have passed the Congress. These are regulations that are being made by an agency. But they have, in their regulatory powers, outlawed, quote-unquote, certain firearms and firearm features. And Governor Gianforte says, this is unconstitutional. It's against the Second Amendment In Montana, we will not enforce these laws or these regulations. Um, After I'm telling you not to confuse regulations and laws, here I am doing it. So this is going to end up in the courts. That's the next step. There will be lawsuits. Probably the federal government will take the state of Montana to court to try to force the enforcement of these regulations. And Montana will argue on the basis of the Second Amendment that these regulations are unconstitutional, and the courts will decide it. So that's one legitimate constitutional avenue for resolving disagreements between states and federal government. The other more extreme um, method of dealing with states and disagreements with the federal government is that the states have the ability apart from the congress of the united states to call a constitutional convention where they can get together and rewrite the laws now it takes it's in the constitution this ability is in the constitution that the states have the ability and i don't i don't have it in front of me but in a certain number they can call a constitutional convention and change part or all of the constitution which would then have to go and be ratified just like the original Constitution was so they could come in and they could they could change the uh, the uh, change the 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 laws or regulations of the Constitution at any point it was deemed necessary by a sufficient number of the states so there are legitimate ways to contest federal um, laws and regulations all right so he says that attempts of this kind would not often be made with levity or rashness because they could seldom be made without danger to the authors, unless in cases of a tyrannical exercise of the federal authority. So Hamilton is pointing out that if the federal government becomes tyrannical and despot- despotic, the states, just as the colonies believed they had the right to overthrow the british government in north america the writers of the constitution admit fully that the states have the right to overthrow the federal government in the event that the federal government becomes tyrannical this goes back over 200 years folks that this this fear of tyranny and 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 the protections in the constitution that are there are there to you know, prevent the government from becoming tyrannical, but they also understood that there, there could and would be abuses of power and the right to overthrow the government is always reserved to the states and to the people. That's the Tenth Amendment. So just so you know. Continuing. Continuing. If opposition to the national government should arise from the disorderly conduct of refractory or seditious individuals, it could be overcome by the same means which are daily employed against the same evil under the state governments. The magistrate, you know, basically it's, it's a crime to try to overthrow the government. Um, unless you win. Um, there's always that. The magistrate being equally the ministers of the law of the land from whatever source it may emanate, would doubtless be as ready to guard the national as the local regulations from the inroads of private licentiousness. So this is referring to individuals trying to overthrow the government. This is not referring to state governments uh, in, in that case. As to those partial commotions and insurrections would sometimes disquiet society from the intrigues of an inconsiderable faction, or from sudden or occasional ill-humors that do not infect the great body of the community. The general government could command more extensive resources for the suppression of disturbances of that kind than would be in the power of any single member. And as to those martial feuds which, in certain conjunctures, spread a conflagration through a whole nation— or through a very large proportion of it, proceeding either from weighty causes of discontent given by the government or from the contagion of some violent popular paroxysm, they do not fall within any ordinary rules of calculation. When they happen, they commonly amount to revolutions and dismemberments of empire. No form of government can always either avoid or control them. It is in vain to hope to guard against events— too mighty for human foresight or precaution, and it would be idle to object to a government because it could not perform impossibilities. So what he's saying is that that no matter how strong the federal government is made, the possibility exists, and it says weighty matters of discontent. Yeah, how how do you put that? Weighty causes of discontent given by the government. So, if the, if the government has done something that has caused enough discontent that a popular uprising takes place, no government can survive that. So, they're not saying that the federal government should be allowed to prevent that or have the power to prevent that because no government can survive that. And this is one of the reasons, I mean, they understood that the American people were going to be armed. It's all part, I mean, you know, the right to the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The right is not guaranteed by the Constitution. The Constitution forbids the government from interfering with that right. None of the rights in the Constitution are granted by the Constitution. They are recognized and defended by the Constitution. It it talks clearly about rights being God-given. We see that in the, the Declaration of Independence, Right. That We're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. So they recognize these are rights from the people. Um, They're from God to the people. And so they recognize that if the government really oversteps its bounds, a popular uprising of the people will be sufficient to end the government. Um, And just as a side note, Everything that happened on January 6, 2021, was not a popular uprising. It was not an insurrection. They weren't armed. They weren't trying to take over the government. It was a protest. It went a little too far, although the vast majority of the people that entered the Capitol weren't there to cause trouble and were basically just walking around. I mean, that... The video of people staying between the velvet ropes in what was supposed to be this mass uprising to overthrow the government tells you that wasn't the case. Um, I, I do personally believe that there were leftist agitators and Antifa types that were stirring up trouble. I also have serious questions about our federal government and what part they may have played in a propaganda mission to to create news and yeah I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist here um, I've reached the point that I, I do not trust our federal government in, in any great extent I, I am absolutely convinced that we have a deep state that needs to be cleared out and I don't know what's going to happen and how it's going to look Um, and I do believe that whenever anybody seriously tries to reform the bureaucracy that lies behind the federal government, they receive such resistance from the bureaucracy that the task seems impossible. Um, So I'm hoping and I'm praying that the federal government does not become tyrannical to the point that the only way to repair, repair it is a general uprising. I want peace. I want prosperity. I don't want armed conflict in the streets. And so, you know, pray for that. But understand that, as Hamilton said here, no government can survive a truly popular uprising. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the Collect for Grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for today and for this week. It's Friday. Make sure you go to church on Sunday. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss the gathering of the saints. You don't want to miss the fellowship and you really don't want to miss sitting under faithful Bible teaching. And as Dr. Lawson said, if you don't have a good church near you, get in your car and drive. Yeah. Um, I've got another clip from Tom Askell from a couple of weeks ago where he said, if there's no good church in your area, move. Find a good church and build your life around it, he said. And that's good advice to the Christian. It really is. All right, folks, have a great weekend. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. will see you again here Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. Go to church. Bye now. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.